Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Friends, would you hear God's word now from uh, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. And welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. We're glad you're with us during this online-only service. And, of course, we still have Q&R, as, as uh, Eric already said. Uh, last one, though, for a little while uh, during the um, holiday season. It is a, the third Sunday of Advent, and um, we are waiting with expectation right now. We are asking the question, who is this Jesus? And so we've been going through passages in Luke, trying to see what they might reveal about Jesus. Now the problem is that those immediately around Jesus didn't even understand Jesus. This is what the text actually shows us. They had a hard time understanding who he was. And therefore, we have to tread carefully. What, how are we going to try to understand him? Look at verse 50. It says, they did not understand what he was saying to them. So what will our understanding be? The words before us are the first recorded words of Jesus about himself, which I think makes this passage very important. Are we going to let Jesus speak about himself? Are we going to be able to see what is revealed by him? Our text shows Jesus as a 12-year-old, and his parents lost him for three days. Now, before you start saying, you know, jokes about, what terrible parents Jesus' parents must have been. Let me give you a little bit of background. In verse 41, it points out that this was all happening during the festival of Passover, or also known as the festival of unleavened bread. And this is when in Jerusalem, which was about a town at the time, about 25,000 people, it would swell to about 100,000 people because of all the people in the surrounding areas would, would come in here to celebrate and feast together. And 
there'd be caravans of individuals that would move into town and they would travel together with friends and family and various relatives. And it was pretty known that these groups would intermix as they would walk together. When it was time to go home in verse 44, it shows that his parents just assumed that he was with one of these other parties. When I was a kid, uh, you know, my, um, we lived outside the city. We had two cars. And my father would go to service much earlier than uh, the rest of the family, my brothers, myself, and um, my mom. We would show up a little bit right before service. But then after church, we would all ride home between these two cars back. And there was this one Sunday when uh, it was time to, to drive back. And I think each parent thought the other one had me in the car. And so I was left at church. And no, I didn't go and sit amongst the teachers and discuss theological things. I, I bummed around. I uh, sat around, twiddled my thumbs until one of them came and picked me up. Nothing, nothing really much to write home about. But the point is this, that this kind of stuff happens, it happens all the time. And, and yet, in Jesus' case, it says in verse 47, the words that were not associated with me, amazed, astonished, confused, everybody was... Um, had these, these feelings around him. And we have to ask why. And so I only have one point today. The one point is uh, really based off of the question we should be asking the, te- the text, which is, who is this Jesus? And then we're going to find three practical applications out of that. So let's just look at one point, who is this Jesus? And then the three practical applications about how to live in light of Jesus. So let's ask, who's Jesus from the text? And I think what verse 41 says is that uh, Jesus' parents have been going to this festival yearly, which I think is actually interesting. This was, this was actually a tradition. This was something they'd been doing for a long time, going to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, the festival of unleavened bread. And some folks need to know what that's about. What that's about is this was, at the, this was the time when Jews— in this area, celebrated the Israelite exodus from Egypt. And so what they would do, which is actually still celebrated today, is they would sit and eat a feast of unleavened bread to remind themselves of the haste of leaving Egypt so quickly. They would eat lamb because lamb was what was killed and the blood was spread on the doorframe to protect them. And they would do this because it would remind them of the liberation that they got from Egypt. But a lot, what a lot of people don't realize is that actually this particular celebration wasn't just looking to the past for, about the deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. It was also a time when they looked ahead to the future hope of the Messiah to deliver them fully. And uh, um, scholars point to the fact that during this time they would sing the Psalm 118 verse 26, which is, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a messianic psalm thinking about the future liberation they're going to get. And so in, in a lot of ways, it was, this was a time when they yearly looked to the past, but they also looked to the future. And so here's what I think is going on in this moment. And it just took a while to kind of like sit in this text and try to figure this out. But I think Jesus in this moment was 12 years old. It was, this was a time of intense learning for, for children of this age. They were, they were growing in their people's history and what, what they were about. And I think this verse 52 alludes to this, that it says, Luke says that Jesus was learning and growing in wisdom and stature. And so at this exact moment, 
he's at one of the most important feasts. He's in Jerusalem when everybody is re-remembering the deliverance that they had coming out of Egypt, but also looking forward to how they're going to be provided for in the future. And I think Jesus is, is realizing his role in all of this. This is the first time that Jesus speaks about himself that we have in the recorded biblical text. And I think it's him coming to terms that he is the real sacrifice of all the lamb, that all the lambs are pointing to, that he's the real priest that intercedes for people, that he's the real temple for the people. You say, okay, what's the, what's the temple represent back then? Well, back then, the temple was the place where God met human beings. This was the place where God's glory uh, resided in the Holy of Holies. And the only way to get in the presence of God was to first admit that you couldn't get there on your own. There ha- the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament depicts this truth that there was a barrier to entering into the presence of God. But then remember what happened after Jesus died, right? What, fast forward into the, towards the end of Luke, and the, the veil was torn in two. That the, the separation between God and humanity was changed. And therefore... You now have access to God that you didn't have before. Now you don't need the temple because Jesus is that temple. Jesus was at his father's house in the temple. But what we're realizing is that, was, that temple is just the shadow of the real temple that Jesus ends up being. We don't need altars to sacrifice now. right? We don't need to make sacrifices because Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. We don't need... Blood spilled because his was enough. We don't need, there was a light stand in the temple. We don't need a light stand because Jesus is the light. There was, a, there was bread in the temple. We don't need that anymore because Jesus is the bread of life. And you're saying, okay, okay, why does all that matter, Michael? This is nice that, you know, the symbolism of the, old, of the temple is fulfilled in Jesus. That's nice. But if Jesus is the true temple, if he's the true sacrifice, if he's the true light and the true bread of life, then there's no other way to come to him, come to God, than through him. People say, oh, it's so easy to kind of pray now. Well, it's because you, don't need, you have access through Jesus. No sacrifice then right now could you give that would be enough on your own. No sacrifice right now back then was actually good either. But it pointed to It was a placeholder for the substitution that Jesus would need to do to take our place. And he did. Because there's there's, there's too much brokenness in you and me. There's too much idolatry on our part where we substitute him for something else that we look to. That we, we chase the wrong things to seek happiness, to find meaning and comfort. We do this day in and day out. You might even be a believer and you still do this. And all those things are still fleeting and they're hollow and they're unable to lift us up out of the ground. And so the temple was the place where the deliverance was going to come from. It was the connection to communion with God. And now that's Jesus. And so what happens in verse 50, when nobody else understands, everybody else is confused, Jesus understood. And he was realizing it maybe for the very first time. It's actually an amazing concept. 
that this is dawning on him, and that's the point of the passage. That even as a 12-year-old, Jesus realized who he was. Right? The whole point of this is that he amazed teachers and with his answers and stuff like that. The point was is that he knew that he had to be here. He had to be something more than just a teacher that amazed people. Right? In verse 47, no, I have to be at my father's house because I am the answer. In the end, the temple is where salvation happens. It happens at the temple, and I'm the temple, and I'm the lamb, and I'm the feast that everything is pointing towards. So, I mean, I mean back up for a second. I don't think we're actually told actually how much this 12-year-old Jesus understood all that, but clearly from the text we know at some level he did. And the whole rest of the New Testament points out how that's being worked out. And so now, if that's the point of the text, we have to ask ourselves, what are the three practical applications that come out of this? And I think there's at least three. There's dwell, live, sit. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. That's what we see here. Dwell, live, sit. First application, dwell. Reflect on this passage this whole week. I, it's actually a very difficult one. People, I, I've listened to some other sermons, and it, this is a hard text for people to preach on because they don't quite know how to pull it together. But what's interesting is this text actually has a lot of similarities with another feast that Jesus went to. Go to the wedding of Cana in John 2. So many parallels. What happens there? There's a feast, two feasts. Okay, great. Uh, Jesus' mother approaches him on the third day in our text. Go to the wedding of Cana. Jesus approaches Jesus. Sorry, Jesus' mother approaches Jesus on the third day. And she asks him questions here. And what does he say? You don't understand. She asks him questions at the wedding of Cana. What does he say? You don't understand. There's a little more illumination, actually, in the John 2 passage, because he says, he says, my hour has not yet come yet. An hour in the book of John is always given as a designation for his death. Jesus was at this party thinking about his death. And I think Jesus was at the temple, here already at some 12-year-old version, understanding his role in all this. And why is Jesus always at parties thinking about his death? It's because he never went anywhere else without connecting it, to his life, to the gospel. And the question you need to ask yourself this morning is, is will you do the same thing? Will you dwell? Because that's what it means to dwell. To dwell means to root yourself and to think on and constantly meditate on the gospel. Even Jesus was doing that. Like if the world disappoints you, Connected to the gospel. If the world scares you, connected to the gospel. If the world angers you, connected to the gospel. The gospel, what is the gospel? It's his life for yours. It's it's the great substitution of your sins 
your issues, your flaws, your mistakes, all the things that you spend most of your life trying to bury and not let other people see and hold down, those things are brought into the light of day, and he takes the penalty for them so that you get the feast, so that you get the party, so that you get the relationship with God again. And so if, if, if you practically are keeping that truth, not just in the back of your mind, but present in the forefront of your mind, connecting everything, every party, every, every action in your life to that, it will transform your interactions. It will transform how you process the hurts. It will, it will transform the way you process the wins of your life. Because now, what happens? Your highs get muted, right? When you want to get high on something, you say, well, actually, I have more needs than I thought I did. But your lows, they get flattened because you're taken out of the abyss. Right? And if you did that, again, it would change everything. That's what dwelling means. This is not something that you can just do on Sundays, watching from home. This is not something where you just do it when you feel up for it. It has to be your life, your breath, what you dwell on. Put it this way. If Jesus broke into creation on Christmas, do you dwell on that every day? Advent is the process to do it as we lead up to Christmas, but will we do it beyond Christmas? Let me give you a couple examples. Let's say you were cheated or robbed or wronged, and, and I know you, you've all have been cheated, robbed, or wronged at some point. Do you know what the, every human heart's inclination is when that happens? I want to get them back. I have to right this wrong. I want them to feel what I feel. Often it turns into vengeance. Is what ends up happening. But dwelling on the gospel reminds us that even though we have wronged God, even though we've cheated, robbed, and wronged him, the God of the universe, even though we've injured others, we don't get what we deserve. God actually doesn't take vengeance on us. And if you have a heart that's dwelling on that, it ends up keeping you from vengeance. And actually, you can actually go about and allows you to seek justice. See, seeking justice without the gospel, without humility, what ends up happening, I think, often is it turns into vengeance. I have to get revenge, and I have to get retaliation. So I actually think people all the time are confusing justice and, and vengeance because they've, they've missed this crucial fact. Justice only works when you don't just taking consideration what the victim needs, but also what the perpetrator needs. What's in their best interest? And I don't think we actually think about that. The gospel means there's more hope for everyone because everyone who believes in him, anyone who believes in him, regardless of what you've done or not done enough of, regardless of your ability to know enough or do enough or be enough, he still comes to you. And so if you aren't dwelling on this everyday gospel in your life, guess what's happening? You're, pro you're dwelling on something else. You don't even know it. What are you dwelling on? What are you hoping on? What are you looking to? Did it die for you? Did it, did it live for you? If, if you're living for a set or standard of, of, of um, principles that you judge other people by or that you judge, judge yourself by, guess what? You're going to find that those other people and yourself will come up wanting on that list. If you are living for love. I know a lot of people say, I'm just living for love. Guess what? Every love of this world will let you down, and you will let them down. If you're living for your job, this is New York. So many people are living for their job. You Guess what? You will never be able to do enough. Unless he is the most thrilling 
and wonderful thing that you've ever heard of in your life, then you aren't going to be able to dwell on him. You're dwelling on something else. And you might even call yourself a Christian, but I don't think you've actually experienced then the transformative power that this can actually operate in your life. So that's the first practical application. One. Two. Dwell, but live. If this is who Jesus is, live in light of the future. Now go back to the text again. Jesus had a feast. And actually, if you think about it, over the course of his life, he's had a lot of feasts. He's constantly going to people's homes, constantly eating, constantly hanging out, constantly going to places where he can have this feast. He's, he's feasting in life through, heck, the last day of his life, the last supper. What is that? It's a feast. He does that with his friends. In fact, when we do communion, when we do uh, in-person services again, what is that? It's remembering the feast because we can feast because the world is going to be made right. Next time when you get a chance, you should um, watch Babette's Feast. It's an old movie. It's slow. Just be warned. It's in subtitles. But it's glorious because it, this, it's, it's clearly not an American movie. Um, everybody's wearing drab clothes. Life is drab. It's cold. And there's this town of, of Christians, actually, religious people. And they're constantly thinking about the future. But in a way where they're, they're, they're thinking the now doesn't matter. And what happens is, is a woman comes into to this, this, the life of this town. And she turns, it turns out that she is a famous French chef. And to show her gratitude for being brought out of where, what she's come from, she prepares a feast for the people. And it just, it, even thinking about it right now, it, it moves me because... These people are sitting around this feast and they're drinking this wine, they're eating this food, and you can literally see their minds blowing up because they've never tasted something so good. They've never experienced the beauty and the transcendent stuff, and they realize that the assured future of the fact that this, fe- this is only a, a, a mere shadow of the real feast that's going to happen, that they can partake of that now, it brings them into an existential beauty and wonder and hope and love. And that's what ends up happening because they got to taste what's to come in the future. But you can have that now. Why? Because the feast points to the future shalom. What's shalom? In in the scriptures, shalom is the Hebrew word, but it means harmony. It means peace. It means put everything put back the way it's supposed to be. The lion laying down with the lamb, the, the world fixed and remade. A world without disease and cancer and darkness. See, Jesus knew that. That's what, was, what Advent was about. He knew what his coming meant. The feast of the future, but being able to partake in that now. And the question I want to ask you all, the application for this is, do you live that way? Will you live that way? Can you live that way? Because if Jesus felt that he could feast while he was alive, even on the day that he knew he was going to die, because he knew he was bringing in the ultimate feast. Do we live in light of that future? Feasting while we live. Because if we did, I think it would, again, it's another way how things would change. One is dwelling and remembering and processing all actions through the lens of the gospel. But this one is living in light of that future, but letting it be present with you now. 
when the world looks most bleak, when, when we're staring down months of more hardship. We don't have to get lost in that because we can think in light of the cross, think of the coming feast. Now what happens, anything meager, anything small, anything just good, if you get to taste that now, it's just icing on the cake because you know what's going to happen in the future. Another way to put another application of this, you can work for justice and reconciliation now knowing that it probably won't happen in your lifetime. But you don't have to get despondent because of it because you know it's going to happen in the future. So you can do your peace now. At the same time, you can celebrate the little wins and glimpses that you see. Even if the larger, uh, um, the, the, the larger problems still persist. Living future-oriented lives, let me tell you how it works. It prevents you from over-realizing your current circumstances and problems and letting that be the active agent in your life. But it keeps you from under-realizing the hope that you can access. Again, not just in the future. This isn't hoping, oh, maybe it'll happen. But you know it's going to happen, and so you live activated lives now. I think I said this a few weeks ago, that if this is true, then the dead don't stay dead. I've just been thinking about that more. If the dead don't stay dead, then ultimately nothing can really stop us, can it? And no other faith even comes close to making that claim. But per- Christians can say that, right? If you, have a dead a- if you have a dead end job right now, right? The dead don't stay dead. If you have a deadbeat dad, the dead don't stay dead. You can keep pushing that, living in light of that future. And if you don't, I'll tell you what happens. If you don't live in light of that future, that means, this, that means the here and now is all that there is. And the people who live in that this is all that there is, that means life is only a zero-sum game. It's the strong versus the weak, society-wise. It's the rich versus the poor. It's the, the political left versus the political right. It's my social policy versus your social policy. And there's no way to move forward because it's, it's, it's us versus them. But... If this is true, if this assured future is real, then you know what we can do? We can sit and weigh these things. Maybe your policy is better than my policy. Maybe your way is better than my way. Let's process this. Let's work on this together. There is nothing more hopeful, I think, than that. That we don't hope in what we aren't sure is happening. We are hoping in what we already know. So future-oriented people don't have to get their way all the time, do they? Now, this is important as somebody who wants to get his way all the time. If you're future-oriented, you don't need that. You don't have to win. You don't have to get what you think you deserve. Because you know that it'll come sometime in, in this life or the next. That your need, and that, that changes your needs. It changes your hopes. It changes how we process the slights. It pr- changes how we process when people attack or don't do or do do. Will you feast on that? That's what Christmas is bringing in. It's living in light of this. Christmas means a feast is coming. And better yet, you can partake in, partake in that now. All right, last application point. Sit with the Father. Dwell, live, sit. Sit with the Father. Look at verse 52. Luke goes out of his way saying Jesus is growing in wisdom and stature, right? And yet, we also know Jesus' humanity didn't trump his deity. But his deity didn't trump his humanity. He was, he was fully God, fully man. 
And somehow, if that's true, we have to realize that Jesus was still growing as a human in knowledge and stature. Verse 52 is that verse for us, which means that at some level, Jesus didn't know how things were going to turn out. Now, we're not told exactly to what degree, but we see hints of that, don't we? Remember, go back to the Garden of Gethsemane or go, go into Jesus' future. What does he say there? Lord, let this cup pass if it, if it be your will. Now, that's not, he's not faking. He's not just saying, well, I already know your wills because I know everything. No, he didn't know. And so at some level, he felt like he needed to ask God. He needed to trust God as what? Father. He said, Father, if this is your will, please let this pass. Abba, Father. That's how he approached the God of the universe as Father. And I, I, think, I think the psalmist put, pulls this out for us. He says that the only thing that, he, that we should be asking for, there's one thing that I ask for, right? One thing that I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon his beauty. That's the end goal. The end location for us is all to be in our Father's house. To trust our Father the way that Jesus trusts his Father. That if he could do it, then we could do it as well. And so our last application point is, is will you trust the Father? Now, I think a lot of people at this point say, that's going to be really hard for me because I've had some pretty bad fathers or father figures in my life. My father hasn't been the person who I thought they should be. But I want to tell you that you can. You want to know why? For you to even say that, to know, that means you know at some level what they should have been. You know what a good father should be. And if that's true, then you can look for that true and better father. What is a father supposed to be? He's supposed to always be there for you, right? He's, a father's supposed to um, know you even better than you know yourself. A father needs to be willing to fight for you, willing to die for you, willing to show you the way. In God the Father, you don't just have a good father, you have the perfect parent. And so those of you, those of you who have bad fathers, you need him more than anything, but actually all of us do because all of us have incomplete and imperfect fathers. You need to know at some level that the God of the universe, the person who's in charge of the universe, is the only person's opinion that matters. That his love is manifested with him fully charging through through the history of the world to rescue you. And so when you pray, I think we prayed earlier in our service, the Lord's Prayer, uh, our Father who art in heaven. I think a lot of people just pass over that, that phrase, our Father. No, sit in that. That's what it means to sit. The very fact that you can even go to him in prayer, as we already acknowledged. A lot of people, you know, huff at, at the Christian view that you can just close your eyes and be present with him. That is an access that was gained for you through Jesus so that you, now you can sit with the Father. That's actually special access. You don't normally, nobody gets to normally get to do that, but now you can. People say that, that, that it's too easy, but that's how you can go to him. And I think that's the point, right? Uh, take, take the child of a king or a queen or a president. Very important people in, in, the, in the world. Only a child can say, will you read this book to me? Will you wake up and, and sit with me? Will you be present with me? And that's what we have in him. You can ask from a story from him. You can ask for his presence. 
And if dads offer, have so much to offer their children in this world, that's what all the scientific data is showing us, that dads have a lot to offer. Imagine what the Heavenly Father has to offer you right now. You and I have been made adopted sons and daughters through Jesus to the Most High King. Sit with him. Act like his children. The God of the universe is your father. The implications are, are manifold. Ultimately, what more do, in the world do you have to prove then? What more in the world do you actually have to worry about? Today and tomorrow are going to happen. He's still going to be your father. Maybe you feel like you have to prove yourself in your job or, or to your friends. But if you are the son or daughter of the most high God, you have nothing to prove. When people criticize you, what's our natural tendency? To run away. But guess what? You can listen to them. What do you have to lose? You can't lose your father's love for you, not the ultimate one. And so that, that and again, the practical application, that changes the kind of risk we will take. We'll take more risk, probably. It, it will change the way that we handle love relationships. We won't be always worried about losing them because we can't lose the ultimate love relationship. It'll change the way that we handle, I mean, it, I, I can't, I mean, the list is, is everywhere. One thing I, I thought about this is that what's amazing about this, this uh, practical application to sit with the Father is actually not an activity. Think about it. Uh, dwell and live are active. To sit, this is a designation. When you are the son or daughter of the Most High King, this is just a designation. The, the goal is actually just let it be over you. To let it actually be true for you. Uh, in medieval, medieval times, a lot of times royal people would, when they were announced, they would be, their name would be announced, but then also their son of man, son of Bob, son of some. There's a, there's a, a lineage that's given. Because that title actually is your story. Because our families are our stories, right? But what if you actually are not just Michael? What if you're Michael, son of the Most High King? What if you were Sarah, daughter of the Most High King? That, again, that designation would change how we process everything else. Let it be part of your identity. This Christmas season, let that title be over you and sit under it. Let it be the defining identity. There's all these other identities that you could probably go into and be into, but you, let this be the one. Take on that name. Because if you did, it would change everything around you. Dwell, live, sit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, it's a good, in some respects, this, the text is, there's so much mystery around it. We have, we have Jesus 12. We know that he's growing in stature and wisdom. And yet we can see almost from the very beginning, it was dawning on him, his role. I pray that we would let that impact us and move us and change us this Christmas season. There's, just, there's so many ways for us to do so. Father, help us to dwell on your gospel, process our lives through it. Help us to live into the future allowing it to affect us now and help us to sit at your, as designated 
sons and daughters of the Most High King. Those terms, those truths moved in our lives would revolutionize this church. They would change how we interacted with each other and how we interacted with others. If, if, Father, if there, if there are folks who are not sure of their faith or what they believe and are watching this right now, I pray that they can see the, the utter uniqueness of this. And if they're not dwelling on you, they're dwelling on something else. If they're not putting their identity in you, they're putting their identity in something else, and it won't be enough, and it can't be enough. Father, there's also Christians watching this, and even though we might intellectually believe this, we're not actively doing it. It's so hard, Father. There, the, this pandemic has just weighed on us on so many levels. Refresh us, remind us, change us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.